I'm isolating because I've got COVID, so I'm sniffly. Oh, wow. It worked out perfect that we're doing a remote interview, though. Yeah, just as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I myself am coming off the back end of something. I'm not sure if it was COVID or just a rough flu, but I'm there with you. Yeah, I've got my I, little box of tissues over here off to the side. Yeah. Yeah, I just tested positive on one of those little tests anyway, but I'm feeling okay. Okay. Well, thanks for making time to do this. I was excited to talk with you. No, likewise. I can't quite, I'm not sure what we're going to be talking about. What's the, what's the agenda? Well, I, obviously with this unfolding situation between Palestine and Israel, I was yeah. glad that I found you because you have been involved on the Palestinian side for quite some time. I mean, over a decade now, yeah. right? Yep, yep, yep. How did you get involved yeah, in that or why, why choose to fight this fight? God, that's a complicated story. Well, you know I'm Jewish, right? So, yes. So, so um, I mean, um, look, my parents were Holocaust survivors, both of them. Uh, my mother and her mother, my grandmother, they survived Auschwitz. My dad survived the uh, extermination camps up in the Ukraine and so on. So I grew up with all their stories. And um, um, it's an interesting question to figure out why I'm on this side uh, and supporting the Palestinians. It's partly because of the lessons I learned from my parents. And, um, and for one thing, when I was a kid, I wasn't sent to the um, summer uh, camps, you know, the holiday camps that my friends went to. They all went to Zionist youth camps. You know, everybody goes to summer camp. And um, I missed out. But my family were pro-Zionist. My mother's cousin, my uncle here, he was the head of the what's called the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, which is a pro-Israel. It's a, a very big organization in Israel that's responsible basically for expropriating Palestinian land and so on. So I grew up in a Jewish household where they weren't um, uh, uh, hostile to Israel or Zionism. But the other thing that happened to me was um, briefly, I started the university with my Jewish friends. I grew up in the Jewish community. And uh, they all went on to become successful lawyers and doctors. But I was studying science and I was kind of a dropout. I, um, I took a lot of interest in things that weren't on the curriculum and I ended up passing and failing. But in the end, they kicked me out. I was uh, kicked out of the university. And my friends went on to great successful careers in, in medicine and law and other things. And I went to the other university, which was in the middle of the Vietnam period, the Vietnam War in 1968. And I started to mix with people that were following and protesting against the Vietnam War. And uh, they had a social conscience. And they talked about politics. So I became involved in the uh, anti-war movement and marched in the streets against Vietnam. And, uh, and so I went off to the left and I read Bertrand Russell and Noam Chomsky. And uh, that started to change my understanding of the world. And in particular, in relation to Israel, the moment you read Noam Chomsky and a few others, you start to find out that the story isn't the one we all grew up with. And that led me to reading intensely and, 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 and not only um, Chomsky, but of course, very many people like the Israeli historians the, that have come out recently. Anyway, the, look, the sh long and short of it is that the story which we all got about Israel is a lie. I mean, uh, the mainstream and, and, and particularly Jewish audiences, every aspect of what happened in 1948 um, has been now refuted by Israeli historians. But we all grew up with, you know, I don't know if you know, you, you may have missed this, you're younger than I am. But in the 60s, there was a movie called um, Exodus. It was based on a, a book by uh, Leon Uris. And the movie is Paul Newman, this good-looking young guy and a young woman, and it's all the refugees from the Holocaust coming to Israel. And the whole thing is this, this mythological, completely false account that there were no Palestinians there. That Anyway, they, it turns out the story of 1948 is a terrible atrocity. I mean, they uh, 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 evicted 
750,000 Palestinians. There were major atrocities before the war broke out in, in the 15th of May. They were, uh, you know, ethnically cleansing villages. They demolished 500 or more uh, uh, Palestinian villages. They just flattened them. So, so 1948, as Israeli historians have been showing, Ilan Pape, Avi Shlaim, even Benny Morris, the story is not the one we grew up with. And once you start to see this, I mean, it's pretty clear. Look, I, I make the point that when I'm talking, I give a lot of, right now, public speeches. All we stand for is truth and justice and international law. Israel has been violating international law on an immense scale. And, and, and in the current crisis, it didn't start on October 7. Gaza was under an illegal uh, uh, blockade for, for 16 years. The media don't talk about it. So people say, oh, it was unprovoked. Well, it wasn't unprovoked. The blockade on Gaza has been a, a cruel, crushing blockade. They've limited the amount of food that was coming in. A few years ago, they said that, Israel, uh, that uh, Gaza would become unlivable by uh, uh, 2020. Well, we're a couple of years past that. Shocking. I've been to Gaza. I went to Gaza a couple of years ago, actually quite a long time ago, in 2012. And they told us not to drink the water, not to let the water come onto your lips when you're having a shower because it's, it's toxic, it's poisonous. So anyway, look, it's a long story, but uh, with many Jews in America, as you'd be aware, they were demonstrating in New York at the uh, Grand Central Station and uh, at, the, um, at the Statue of Liberty. A lot of Jews in America and around the world are standing with the Palestinians. Um, for for um, I mean, the West Bank is is an atrocity. It's a, a brutal occupation. So I mean, the story is terrible. And and anybody with a conscience, and especially if you're a Jew, um, it seems to me that's the lesson I learned. You have to stand up for 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 the the the, um, the the victims. We're not the victims. The myth that we all grew up with: the Jews are always the victims. Even now, the Israelis are pretending that they're the victims. Well, it's very far from that. So anyway, sorry for such a long-winded no, explanation. No, that was a but perfect explanation. We have this long format, so that was the perfect take for it. Why do you think that, well, as you put it, this victim mindset, why do you think that that is such a strong hold? Well, look, the Holocaust was, was the worst, you know, uh, atrocity and, and, and uh, genocide in, in recent history. There's no question about that. And uh, as I say, I grew up with parents who went through that. My mother uh, used to tell me she saw Mengele, the angel of death, the Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz every day. So, you know, um, it's pretty shocking. But the trouble is, as many Jews are saying, it's a disgrace that Israel and the Jews, they use the Holocaust to justify the crimes in Israel. Constantly, the excuse for what they're doing is, is uh, the, what happened in the Holocaust. Well, the Palestinians aren't to blame for the Holocaust. In fact, there was a, um, a member of the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, uh, her name was... Um, Shulamit Aloni. She did an interview on Democracy Now! in America, and she said in the interview about uh, the way that the Israeli propaganda works, she said, yeah, it's a trick. This is her words. It's a trick we always use. We always cite anti-Semitism and the Holocaust to justify the crimes against the Palestinians. And, and look, as, as, a, as a, a, a son of, of uh, Holocaust survivors, I can't tolerate that uh, um, really um, um, uh, a disgrace. It's it's a, 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 a um, what's the word? It's a desecration of the memory of the victims of the Holocaust uh, to 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 exploit it in this way to justify the crimes of the state of Israel. That's by, and of course there are Americans like 
um, Norman Finkelstein, who also has Holocaust parents, he says it always very eloquently. And um, in Israel, Amira Haas, the journalist, she's the daughter of Holocaust survivors. So I follow them, their inspiring uh, example where it's because of their Holocaust experience, their parents' experience, that they stand up for the Palestinians. That's the, the basic message. Why do others fall on the other side of that, having parents who may have experienced the same thing? Yeah, look, it's a good question. And, and it's to do with a lifelong um, indoctrination. And uh, these are good. I think about that a lot. Why are my friends, a lot of my Jewish friends, of course, on the other side? They, uh, they're uncritical supporters of the state of Israel. Look, one answer is they really don't know the truth about the history of Palestine. It goes back to 1917, the Balfour Declaration. I've been reading that quite intensely. Um, the, the Zionists back then, they sewed it up with, with Britain and gave away Palestine to the European Jews. And, and betrayed the Arabs with whom they had an agreement. So it goes back the long way. And um, um, more recently, as I say, it, it was only with those new historians that we started to find out how different the story of 1948 is. It, it, the, the, the slogan, you know, the, the Zionists and Jews have the slogan, a, a, a land without people for a people without a land. That's just bullshit. I mean, you know, I show pictures of Palestine. It was this thriving, uh, flourishing uh, uh, cities and countryside of, of sophisticated uh, uh, societies. It wasn't empty when the European Jews came in hordes, in waves to take over. Uh, they started as a very small percentage, and by 1947 or 48, they were still only about 30%. And then the United Nations divided it and gave the majority of Palestine to the European Jews. Well, you know, you can understand that the Palestinians were a bit upset about this, you know. And so, so the new historians that, you know, Ilan Pape, the Israeli, and uh, the others I mentioned, they started to show that the 1948 war uh, was quite different from anything we grew up with. It wasn't this heroic fight for survival. I mean, the idea we all grew up with was, well, Israel was declared on the 15th of May, and suddenly all the Arab countries invaded this fledgling state to try to strangle it in its crib. Well, that's bullshit. It turns out that firstly, and you can read this in, in, in uh, Avi Shlaim and uh, various other historians, the Israeli, the then Jewish state, was militarily superior from the beginning to the end. The, 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 the Arab countries that, that converged were, were inferior militarily in numbers, so Israel was never threatened uh, militarily. Uh, and before the, that war had broken out, as I mentioned, they had already committed serious massacres. The most famous, the notorious one is Deir Yassin, where they went into a village, I've been there, and they just blew up and massacred and shot uh, people. Another one which has come to light recently is um, the Tantura massacre. There's a beach. They interviewed um, uh, some of the su surviving Israelis who told shocking stories of the atrocities that they would line up and rape and murder and burn innocent, uh, non-resisting Palestinians in their villages. So it turns out that the entire 1948 story is, is much worse uh, and indefensible, a kind of a, well, ethnic cleansing. In the, in the strict kind of legal sense. So it's been hard for, for Jews who grew up with this heroic story of, of Israel as the you know, refuge for, for Jews who were always um, uh, discriminated against. Um, it's very hard for people to, to come to terms with a quite different story, and uh, most still haven't. And that's the 48 story, not to mention what's happened ever since um, on, the, on the West Bank. I've traveled there recently. I was only there about a month ago, traveling around in the West Bank, where I've been several times. It's, it's, it's terrible what's going on. 
I mean, they're shooting dead kids. You know, uh, DCI, Defence of Children International, I, I met with them and I've got, you can go on their website. They keep the records. On average, it's more now in the last uh, period, but they kill, the, the Israelis shoot dead two kids a week. And that's not to mention all the others they shoot dead. I don't know, 10,000 in the last few years. Um, this is not discussed in the mainstream media. And, that, and, and of course, house demolitions, uh, 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 what's called uh, um, uh, detentions, administrative detention. People are arrested without charge, without trial, and kept in jail for long periods uh, without any, any legal proceedings. So um, it's a very dark story. And, and if you know about it, uh, like many Jews, uh, you... you, you because you see, Israel is acting on behalf of Jews. I mean, that's why the slogan you see in New York and elsewhere is not in our name. That's the slogan. Uh, you, you have to, you can't be silent. That's sort of the obvious lesson. You know, you, you, you can't look the other way. That's what Amira Haas says too about her mother. Her mother tells the story when she was being sent by a cattle truck, as my mother was, into the concentration camp. She saw, her mother reports that she saw the, the German a citizen standing by and watching this and, and looking aside, as it were, not, not responding to this, this, this crime that they're watching. So she talks about this despicable looking aside, looking away. Well, you, we can't do that. Uh, if you know what's going and you have an obligation to know, and people like me and others around the world are trying to draw attention to this, to, to the Jewish community, to say, look, you know, this is what's being done in your name. In, 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 in any decent world, and, and anyone with a conscience can't tolerate this. So, so that's. But your question about why the others, I think there's a simple answer. They're ignorant of the realities. I think the, the, the truth problem is, is the problem. I'm sorry to cut you off there. Can you? No, go that? go. I think the problem is that in and of itself is this idea of ignorance. I mean, someone who has only recently come to the table and is trying to get caught up on you know decades of history with Israel and Palestine and actually try to comb through what is really going on. Yeah, it seems like the one thing that pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli people can agree on is that the other side is ignorant. I mean, I've had discussions with people even just on the Balfour Declaration and each side has their own story. That they do. What was written in the Balfour Declaration was really just in pursuit of a Jewish homeland and there was no covert move to push out the Palestinians. And then on the other side, you have the whole thing was BS and the plan from the beginning was to covertly push out Palestinians because they knew that the Arabs wouldn't go for it if it was with force. And it was a time when nation building was a thing. I mean, the Ottoman Empire was crumbling. You had World War I. You had these promises from the British. And well, to quote a podcast I was listening to, they said the Jews weren't going to let not having a homeland stop them from building one. And I think it's just trying to find out what the truth is because each side seems to be operating from their own sort of fact yeah look you're right about that uh when i give talks about this i often put up on the screen the two conflicting narratives you know alan dershowitz or someone like that on one side and noam chomsky or finkelstein on the other and you're quite right and i have to confront this that with the best will in the world it's a bit hard to figure out the truth because of these conflicting narratives and most people can't or don't want to make the effort to read through and sort out. So I agree that it's difficult. I, I don't know how to answer that except to say that, well, I don't think the truth is too hard to figure out really. Um, but I, I, I don't know how to answer that except to say you have to make the effort. And um, going back to Balfour, the truth about that is an interesting question. Uh, I've, as I said, I've been reading that quite intensely and 
I didn't know till recently that Heim Weitzman, the uh, British uh, Zionist, uh, and, and in fact, the American judge Brandeis, they cooked it up together and uh, Balfour signed it. And um, as you said, on one side, which I think is pretty uncontroversial, they used the words a home for the Jewish people. But in, in other, you can find the quotes, I've got them all. Uh, Wiseman in his correspondence and other public statements, it was perfectly clear they wanted a Jewish state. They wanted to expropriate uh, Palestine. But that goes back to 1917. It is important because that was the beginning and the British had their own reasons for. I mean, you can see a, a, a letter that um, Balfour wrote saying roughly, the wishes of the European Jews are much more important than whatever the Arabs may think. I mean, this, however million or however many Arabs in Palestine, he said, it doesn't matter what they think. I mean, this is like an extraordinary racist uh, attitude of Balfour, who was, anyway, that was then. A lot happened since 1917, but it's, you're right, it's an important part of, as you say, the conflicting narratives. And uh, in some ways, what happened in 1948 is the most important for understanding today because of the, the horror of the uh, ethnic cleansing and, and the ongoing uh, uh, tragedy and the occupation in the West Bank and in Gaza. So, yeah, the, I don't know how to answer, I mean, the, how to sort out the conflicting narratives, but you have to read the other side. I, I'm a teacher. I teach at the university. And whenever you go to controversy, you simply have to read both sides and, and make up your mind. I, I, you can't tell people what to think. You have to make up your own mind. But you have to do a conscientious job of reading the reasonably reputable people on both sides. Well, now when Jewish historians like, like I mentioned, and, and others like Norman Finkelstein, Avi Schleim, Ilan Pape, any number of them, uh, and, and, and Palestinians, after all, like in America, Rashid Khalidi at Columbia University, Edward Said himself, uh, the great Palestinian, he was at my university in Columbia. Um, look, it, makes an, it takes an effort. depends on what you read. I, I can't give a formula for what the truth is. It's like any dispute. But, um, but you know, take today. The facts are so overwhelmingly egregious. How people can, can tell the story in some other way, where now people are literally talking in terms of genocide in a technical sense. This is not just a throwaway piece of rhetoric. This is now, I mean, in a technical, somebody wrote an article recently calling, calling it a, 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 what did you say? I mean, legally, technically uh, uh, has reached the level of genocide. I mean, this is shocking. Uh, and, and the idea that, you know, they're, they're just attacking Hamas. Uh, Chomsky once wrote in the Vietnam War, you only had to look at the tonnage that America dropped on Vietnam. Maybe it was Cambodia. You only have to look at how, many, how much uh, ordinance they dropped to know that it was an atrocity. You know, the idea that, that Israel is targeting Hamas is just bullshit. And, and it's clear when you look at the pictures, you know, the, the, these horrifying, I'm, sadly, I just watched too much of this stuff. People pulling, you know, mangled bodies out of the rubble and children. How could you possibly believe the, the propaganda when you just look at the pictures? I mean, entire residential suburbs are flattened, uh, and not for the first time. But this time, it's much worse, and not for the first time. It's important what happened in previous occasions, but but now uh, uh, they, they the, the one of the Yoav Gallant, one of the leaders in Israel, said they're now going to cut off. Water, food, electricity, everything. That's just genocide. I mean, this, these are exp the reason it, it, it passes the, it crosses the line into genocide. The hardest thing to prove, they say generally, is intent. Well, now they're so explicit about their intention. I mean, cutting off every possible source of, of, of uh, resources, water, water and electricity and food and, 
I mean, it's just open. And, and the sad thing is that, that uh, our countries are, are permitting it to happen. Our governments, they're not even, even supporting a call for a ceasefire. This is just shocking. Uh, I don't understand, frankly, people who can, can comfortably make excuses as they do. So your question is, is the right one. Why are people on the other side, they somehow absorb, uh, George Orwell used to write about this, you know, the, the terms that people use that somehow comfort them. You know, we call it a war. So then you say, oh, yes, there's collateral damage. You know, let me say, if I, you don't mind me going on about this for a minute, once they use the word war, they think this justifies any amount of civilian uh, deaths. So it's really tragic and, 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 and obscene that they will actually give the example of the Second World War where the Allies, they bombed the hell out of Dresden, that, the, the notorious case, or even Hiroshima. Now, they were major war crimes that we committed. They were war crimes that the Allies committed. And now the Israelis are using that to justify what they're doing. It's just shocking. So they're kind of openly admitting they're committing war crimes. They somehow think you call it a war, therefore, and they're explicit. Some people, politicians are asked, where's the red line? How many civilians have to die before you, you think it's you know, excessive? They say, no, there's no red line. I mean, these are just openly genocidal statements. And uh, you only have to watch the videos to... It's heartbreaking to watch what, what they're suffering. This is unprecedented. Uh, so anyway. It seems like for some, the argument is enough that what happened on October 7th was so horrific that sure. the chains are off now. And that yeah, whatever right. response Israel deems yeah. is required is the one that we should back and should be backed. Yeah. Otherwise, you are, a, you are pro a terrorist organization. Yeah, right. You're absolutely right. That's what they all say. And just ask yourself, how reasonable or decent is that? Yeah, what the, I have to say in my speeches, what Gaza and Hamas did was a crime. It was an atrocity. There's no question. Okay, they committed a terrible atrocity. The question is, what's the appropriate response by Israel? Firstly, it's not self-defense after the fact to go in and flatten Gaza. That's not self-defense on any understanding. It's pure bloodthirsty revenge. The way to have stopped it was to not have tormented Gaza to the point where they were desperate. The desperation, I mean, you know, even a few years before, in 2018, they had a peaceful, what was called the Great March of Return. They lined up at the barrier and, and, uh, and demonstrated, and Israeli snipers shot dead. I don't know how many people, uh, a nurse, a guy in a wheelchair. So they were peaceful demonstrations, and they were being shot dead by Israel. So you can imagine for a minute to think of the the desperation of people that are suffering. Okay, they did a terrible atrocity. Let's, there's no question about that either. The question now is, does that justify, as you put it, any reaction to flatten Gaza? This is just absurd. It's absurd. And, and the appropriate action, as Palestinians are saying, yeah, there are international criminal court. You, take, you have a proper commission of inquiry and you prosecute people in Gaza and you prosecute the Israelis for the war crimes. That's the appropriate approach. Yeah, these were crimes. And the idea that you uh, exact this kind of grotesque um, 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 military vengeance on essentially the civilians of Gaza. I mean, you, you, there's no longer any room to argue about this. When you've got 10,000 dead, probably more, and of those, about half are children. The idea that this is an appropriate response to the Gaza atrocity, the, the Hamas, it's just, it's obscene. That's the only word I can use. Do you think that this, this current war is, you know, one of the phrases I've 
come across in trying to research this is this idea of having to trim the lawn yeah. in regards Israel having to go into Palestine to kind of root out some of these terrorists and then yeah. periodically do it again. Yeah. Do you think yep. this is a similar pathway that they're trying to take in this endeavor or is this? No, this is much worse. This is, this is a kind of their ultimate attempt to just finish the problem from their point of view, just wipe them out. I mean, previously, you're right, they used that phrase, which is a pretty grotesque phrase. And mind you, each time they had their major wars against Gaza, I mean, even the term war is not quite right, because Gaza doesn't have one pl airplane, jet, you know, F-16, or doesn't have one Merkava tank, it doesn't have, you know, one uh, Apache helicopter. It's not a war when they go and bomb the crap out of, out of Gaza. But you're right, on previous occasions, the history is important. In, in cast lead, or what it was called in 2008-9, which I followed closely, you read up on this. I followed this very closely. In each case, Israel provoked it. Um, uh, what happened was they would have a ceasefire, um, and, and Hamas would observe the ceasefire. Uh, I've got the details. In fact, it was up on an Israeli government website. The uh, Israeli Minister, Ministry of Defense used to have a bar graph that showed how many rockets were coming from Gaza. And at one point, they had a ceasefire. There were no rockets from Hamas, and Israel did some, some violence and, and shot up a bunch of people in Gaza. And that was a provocation. And then, of course, the rocket started again. And then they used that as a pretext. And my understanding, and I think it's pretty uncontroversial if you look at the historical facts, Israel would provoke Gaza, and then they would fire their rockets, and then they used that as the pretext to go in and mow the lawn, which means flatten entire res By the way, interesting you mentioned that because they've got a term. When I talk about this um, uh, indiscriminate bombing of civilians and, and flattening residential districts, there's a, a, it's, it's a matter of policy. Israel has a policy. They've got a name for it. And I say to my, when I give a talk, it's called the Dahia Doctrine. Dahia Doctrine. And I say to the audiences, Google it. Google the Dahia Doctrine and find out this is Israeli policy to do indiscriminate, disproportionate damage to the civilians of, of Gaza. That's actual policy. So these are criminal uh, uh, policies. So when, when you see them flattening, as in the previous mowing the lawn, it's a, a grotesque uh, metaphor for uh, major war crimes. And, and, and the, the, uh, the suburb, I used to show photographs of it when I lecture around the world on this stuff. There was a suburb, uh, I think it was in one of the previous wars, uh, Shujaia, a, a, a suburb of, of, of Gaza City. And you can see pictures of, again, as far as the eye can see, residential buildings all reduced to rubble. Now, that's not targeting Hamas. It's just absurd to can how people can swallow that kind of transparently fake uh, excuses for for committing atrocities somehow um, uh, your question is the right one continually how is it people can cannot see this for what it is um, but but go back to the second world war i grew up as we all did uh, uh thinking until i got old enough that yeah well maybe dropping those two bombs on japan was the right thing people still say that you know, somehow we all talked ourselves into, oh, Japan was so terrible. The history is quite different. Japan was on its knees. Uh, they didn't need to do that. That was a major crime that we committed. I mean, beyond imagination. But we grew up thinking that was okay. And, and, and Dresden, you know, these weren't okay. But, but it, it's sort of an answer to your question that we all somehow grew up with. We were the good guys. And, and so wiping out all the civilians, um, that, that's the, the nature of... of propaganda and, and, and uh, maybe this tribalism, you're on one side and you, you assume we're the good guys.
and the other side is so evil you can't cross the bounds. You can't even look at what they're proposing. Exactly. And it's very sad when you do as I do. I now have very many Palestinian friends and I've traveled in Palestine. It's depressing to to see the image of them on the other side where you know Palestinians. And and they're not they're portrayed and that's why it works as we did. The propaganda portrays them as evil. Well you see it. That's how we did it with the Germans or with the Vietnamese or whatever whoever the official enemy is, or the Russians now. And and there's this dehumanizing and, and demonizing of people. And, and it's so grotesquely unfair. Um, and here too, in Australia, probably in America too, there's this very uh, difficult polarization now um, between the Jewish and, and other communities and the Palestinians. Well, there seems to be a narrative, and I don't, I don't know if it's true or not. It's that, in some sense, Palestinian existence is a threat to Israel and to the Jewish state, in that yeah. Palestine's it, this isn't a war over land. It is a war over the right for Jews to exist or not. How is that? I mean, that's a wonderful. It's a good example that you raise. Anybody in their right mind has to stop and ask, how is Palestine, or Gaza in particular, a threat to Israel? Israel is the fourth most powerful military in the world. They are currently militarily occupying all of the West Bank with their troops rampaging around the West Bank, shooting dead uh, civilians. Gaza has been technically under what's called belligerent occupation, although they pulled their soldiers out and their settlers. They have controlled every aspect of life in Gaza. How can anybody in their right mind imagine, it's just bullshit, they can't conceivably believe that that Israel is under some threat from Gaza or from Palestine. It's just nonsense. And in fact, the reality is, when you look at even their pronouncements, even Hamas, uh, one of the leading scholars of Hamas and Gaza, by the way, is a Jewish woman, is uh, Professor Sarah Roy at Harvard University in the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. She studied and worked in Gaza. She's written the most important books about it. When you read her and some others, you realize, firstly, Hamas isn't the crazy terrorist, you know, Jew-hating, you know, uh, annihilationist, exterminationist group that they keep talking about. It, it's quite a different story. Um, and, and by the way, they have repeatedly agreed to making a permanent settlement with Israel on, on a, a, a kind of a peace agreement, repeatedly. And, and that's never talked about. But you can read it in, in the, the, the reputable literature. So, so they keep citing the original uh, um, charter, the Hamas charter, which they abandoned. It was true. That was a bit, you know, uh, anti-Semitic and, and kind of genocidal. But, you know, they're a practical political entity now, and they've moved well beyond that. And they've made repeated attempts to make a settlement a permanent settlement on the original peace agreement uh, with Israel. So why isn't that talked about? So, so the whole idea that they're this, this existential threat to Israel is just utter nonsense. And, and of course, it's the reverse. Who's threatening who? You know, one of the things that's getting a lot of traction, and, and I'm currently involved in this, one of the slogans around the world here too in the rallies is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So the Jews and the Zionists, they go, bananas over this thing. Look, they want to eradicate, you know, Israel. It's, it's now, you know, threatening to, to, to exterminate all the Jews. That's just such nonsense. And, and a, a very good uh, uh, American academic, Yusuf Munaya, has written a good piece about what that really means. It's a, after all, firstly, Israel is the one that has eliminated uh, uh, Palestine. The idea that, you know, it's Palestine that wants to take over Israel, it's the opposite, obviously. Israel is in control of everything from the river to the sea, is under complete Israeli control. 
what that plea is, is, is asking for is to liberate the Palestinians from their oppression, from their occupation. They're not free in Gaza. They're not free in the West Bank. Inside Israel, they're living under an apartheid regime. We haven't talked about that, but three of the world's leading human rights organizations, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and B'Tselem, Israel's own Human Rights Watch, have written extensive reports about the apartheid. Well, it's apartheid in Israel because there are, I don't know, 50 laws on the books that discriminate against the Palestinians. In the West Bank, it's worse than apartheid. It's a brutal military occupation. In Gaza, it's even worse. So, so from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Is just let's liberate the Palestinians from their oppression. What, what's wrong with that? Well, but, but they get hysterical. They go completely ape, ape shit over this and, and, and accuse. I, I, I got uh, assaulted recently in the street by a Jew who came up to me and was, was yelling this in my face and would throw this at, at you as, as if this proves that you're into, uh, you know, uh, exterminating the Jews. That's just, it shows you the, the, the deviant uh, thinking and, and, and how polarized this has become. It's so toxic. You can't talk rationally to people about this. And, and, and you can see from what I'm saying, how can people have got themselves into the, 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 the mindset that, that the Palestinians are a threat to Israel? I mean, America has just sent warships off the coast. A nuclear it's, submarine it's, as well, in fact. Oh, right. They're gonna, what are they going to send a, what, a, a torpedo into Gaza? What the fuck are they talking about? You know, I mean, it, it's like there's no – how can there be a military issue from, from Gaza? They've got, you know, hand weapons, light arms. Well, I think you know, the worry they, they is fl- that other Arab nations are going to step in and then it will – Yeah, that's a worry. Escalate. And that could have been avoided if they didn't create such a tragedy in Gaza for 15 years with no repercussions. Israel has had impunity. Look, that's been a war crime. The, the uh, crime of, of, uh, of collective punishment in Gaza has been known. It's uncontroversial. It's been a war crime for 17 years. Why is Israel able to do this with impunity? I mean, the fact that they burst out and create some terrible, you know, actions on their own, it's not to excuse it, to explain it. I have to say America went through this, as you know very well, in, in, in September 11 in 2001. Uh, Chomsky had trouble whenever he would say, you have to try to explain where it came from. It wasn't justifying September 11 to explain why they may have created such an atrocity. And, and people were unwilling to, to think about the causes of it. That was somehow you weren't allowed to ask, why would some people become so crazy as to commit such an atrocity, which it was, and it's certainly not to justify it. So I'm making the same distinction. To understand why the people in Gaza or Palestine generally would do such terrible atrocities, you have to understand, you're not, people talk as though there was no history before October the 7th. What, nothing happened before October 7th? The Palestinians didn't have any, any reason to be upset? So, yeah, that's part of the problem. The from the river to the sea, I believe here in the States, we just had a representative censored over that because it was, yeah, no. it was made into a that big was deal. T- t- uh, Rashida Tlaib. Yeah. Yeah, shocking. I wasn't yeah. familiar yeah. with that, that sentence prior to hearing uh-huh. about her being censored. But yeah. If you yeah. had asked me if it was offensive or not, I would have said yes, just because of what I've been seeing in regards to yeah, it, but right. I don't actually know, yeah. I, did, I wasn't familiar with it. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's interesting, it came up with Rashida Tlaib and, and here too. They use this, it's a trigger for, for Jews and for Zionist supporters and everybody else, assuming that this is to eradicate Israel. But you know, from what I've said, you can understand. Firstly, it's, it's inconceivable that that's, uh, uh, it's, I don't even know where to start to explain. Firstly, it's not possible. Gaza and Palestine don't have the means to do it, but it's not the intention. 
you can interpret the words that way if you really um, maliciously want to uh, read the Palestinians in the worst possible, you know, murderous light. But but the light which it's intended, and I know this because I'm so close, and, and as I say, read uh, um, uh, Yusuf Munaya, who's one of the greatest Palestinian uh, advocates, read his article. In fact, even the, the very important uh, Israeli, I'm sorry, Jewish um, American, um, Peter Beinart, read people like that who will explain it's a plea to liberate the Palestinians from their terrible oppression. It's obviously what it means. And why interpret it as genocidal on their side when you're the one committing genocide? I mean, that's the irony of this. Well, the, do you the, think the that perpetrators? No, I'm sorry. Continue. No, I was just going to say the perpetrators are now making themselves out to be the victims. Well, do you think that what happened on October seventh is feeding into that because they they saw yeah. this attack and yeah. well, now yeah. everything is a potential yeah. attack because they were capable yeah. of yeah. doing this and were able yeah. to actually do it. Absolutely, it was the worst thing. I mean, it hasn't helped the Palestinians. God knows. I mean, I don't understand why they would do it, but out of desperation, look, look, what look at the price they're paying for it now. I mean, I can't think anybody would have thought that was a good idea. But yes, it's an atrocity, and <clears throat> it's a trigger for them, <coughs> a pretext for them to, to respond, to justify their, their rhetoric and their propaganda, that look at what the Palestinians and the Gaza people, they're just bloodthirsty, Jew-hating, uh, that that help, it feeds into their their narrative, of course, but that's uh, simplistic and, and and not fair. If you read and know anything about what how the question is the opposite: How long did the world and Israel expect and the Jews expect to keep the Palestinians living under such brutal oppression? I mean, just from the few things I've mentioned, the number of kids and 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 the number of house demolitions, the number of people beaten up in the West Bank—it's the most shocking story. That's the West Bank. And by the way, as people always point out, there's no Hamas in the West Bank. Why are they brutalizing the West Bank? Because, of course, it's not even a secret. I wrote an article about it recently. The intention is to, uh, to, to basically uh, take over the whole of the West Bank uh, as, uh, to, to, to make it part of Israel. But I've talked That's to a number of people that will even push back on that idea, the idea that there's settlers trying to move in and, and push the Palestinian now. Palestinians out, or that there's even any apartheid going on, that that That's is just, just bullshit. Yeah. How, how can they even say that? that you've just got to be, look, I, I've, I, in an article I wrote, going back to the history and the recent stuff, Netanyahu and others have come out explicitly. Listen, here's another fact that's relevant to that. Go check the, the Likud party, Netanyahu's party's uh, platform. It says in their platform that there won't be a Palestinian state from the river to the sea. They say that. They they've explicitly said that they won't have a Palestine. Now, so go and argue with these idiots. What are they saying? What I mean, look, it's out of ignorance. And and in fact, speeches that that Netanyahu has given, I can't off the top of my head tell you, but I've got the the, the references in this article I wrote. I can give you the link later. They're perfectly explicit. There's not going to be a Palestinian state in the West Bank or Gaza. They're just it's not even a secret. They're quite explicit about it. So what's all this talk about two states and a peace process? They're constantly going on about it. This is gaslighting. It's just, you know, a charade. And, and the Palestinians are supposed to put up with this, where they're openly, explicitly uh, uh, refusing. And, and, and the, the idea that, you know, there's no house demolitions, that there's no evictions and, and, and so on going on in the West Bank, it's not a secret. Um, so it's just uninformed to, 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 to pretend that it's not been the intention, but now it's not even a secret. The intention is to 
to expropriate the whole of the West Bank. Now, of course, they've got to put up with a few of those enclaves they're stuck with. They can't get rid of, you know, Ramallah and, and Nablus and a few of the cities. So they're going to squeeze them into these little enclaves that are basically, I mean, got, the Palestinians have municipal control. But, you know, it's also not a secret that the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is actually collaborating with Israel. That's common knowledge. And the Palestinians all know it. They're actually arresting and, and, and brutalizing the, their own Palestinian people. Um, it's, it's very disappointing. But, but uh, Abbas, is, is, uh, he talked about this sacred, he used the word sacred security coordination with Israel. They're, they're, they're a big part of the problem. The West Bank is, it's sort of like the Latin American model when America would use, you know, in, in, in Chile or elsewhere, they'd have local militias, you know, doing, uh, maintaining the, the occupation or the, um, the oppression of the local people. So the Palestinian Authority is part of the problem, but there's no Hamas in the West Bank. And, and uh, Israel is, the plan is to keep uh, the Palestinians in their little uh, isolated little cantons. They can't, they're, they're, uh, uh, um, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, barriers, uh, checkpoints all over the West Bank. Palestinians can't move from one city to another without going through checkpoints, and you can't get to hospital without going through checkpoints, and then they're kept at the checkpoints. Um, it's impossible. There's no viable state left anymore. And if you look at the map, there's a famous map you can see. I don't know if you've seen it, Disappearing Palestine. It's very famous, where first you can see all of it, Palestine is green, then the, the partition is like 55% of it was given to, to the Jews, and so they've only got 48%. And after the, the war in, in uh, uh, 1948, they took 78%. So now the West Bank is 22%. And now with all of this stuff, there's now these little bits and pieces, these little islands. That's what's left of, of the Palestinian state. So now what's the, the bullshit about you know, a Palestinian state? Two-state solution. It's finished. And, and you wonder why the Palestinians are upset. So, yeah, it's pretty grim. Is it true that Benjamin Netanyahu's government has sort of propped up Hamas, almost to use as yeah, an apparently. example of... Apparently, and I don't know the details of this too well, but apparently they funded and supported it as an attempt to, to counter the, the um, secular uh, PLO um, and Fatah. I don't fully understand that, so I'm not very really good on that, but apparently, there's no doubt I think that they were supporting it and funding it to create, and, and it served their purposes in ways that I'd have to get better informed about, but that was certainly part of it. It serves their purposes to have this, this uh, you know, terrible situation in, in, in Gaza because they've wanted to exclude Gaza from the uh, uh, whole problem of Palestine so that they wouldn't have to deal with, with the, the two-state solution because by all legal standards, Gaza and, and the West Bank are essentially one. It's one country that would have been what, what the Palestinians agreed to. The Palestinians signed up to uh, uh, the UN 242 or whatever it was. The two-state solution would have been Gaza and the West Bank on the Green Line, the Armistice Line. Well, that's, you know, the, the wall already ruined that. You know, the, the barrier, which you've, se if you've seen uh, in, in Palestine, you can see it everywhere. That takes about 10% of the West Bank. It snakes around uh, all the Israeli uh, places. And, and so what, what two-state? They took 10% of it with the wall. Area A. Uh, no, Area C on the Jordan Valley is about 60% of the West Bank. That's under complete Israeli control. They're not going to give that back. That's the most fertile area uh, around the Jordan River. That's 60%. So like some 70% is under complete Israeli control. Um, the West Bank is a, a mess. And there's no Hamas, you know, in the West Bank. Why is it uh, that... By the way... Oh, no, continue. 
No, I, I was just going to say, my understanding is that if there was another election, as, as had been in, in 2006, you know, Hamas was elected in a fair and free election in Gaza. The, uh, Jimmy Carter was there and supervised it and so on. They'd still be, I, I understand, I'm not too sure, but I think they'd still be elected in the West Bank and in Gaza if there was an election. Go on, you're going to ask a different question. Do you, well, feeding off of that, do you think that feeds into this idea that there's no separation between Palestinians and Hamas and that this terrorist organization is almost inherently tied to the people out there? Look, a lot of the Palestinians, I know people from Gaza, um, they don't love Hamas. Um, one of the reasons they voted for them was that they weren't corrupt. The PA were corrupt. The, the deeply uh, enmeshed in, in the, the collaboration with Israel. And Hamas, they're fundamentalist, uh, you know, a branch of the um, um, Islamic Brotherhood. Uh, but they are running Gaza. The idea that they're a terrorist organization is another one of these Orwellian misuses of language. They always use that term, but firstly, they're a resistance organization against the, the terrible violence with which they're subject to. Uh, and they do acts which are, are, are inexcusable or at least can be condemned. But if you use the word terrorism legally, strictly, who's the worst terrorist organization in the world? It's your country. I knew you were going to say I mean, that. I was waiting for that. You, I knew you were going to anticipate that. But, I mean, by any standard, you just define terrorism as using the threat or actual military you know, uh, um, uh, actions against civilians or whatever. I'm, I'm glad you you know, laugh and, and, and accept that at least that has some point. But, but you know, one could give plenty of evidence there. So I'm just pointing to the, the, the prejudicial uh, propaganda use of that word. Hamas, for all its sins, is, is the legitimate uh, government of, of Gaza, and a lot of people voted for it who don't love um, uh, Hamas, and they're not even Muslims uh, necessarily. Um, and as I say, in the West Bank, there are Christians as well as Muslims, and they probably would be voting for Hamas. Well, they don't love it. But um, so, look, you can read about Hamas, as I mentioned. If you read Sarah Roy, an American scholar at Harvard, and read others, Hamas is a complicated group, but, you know, um, it is what it is. And, and, and if you have an honest political analysis of it, um, yeah, we deal. Look, I mean, not to keep beating up on, on, on America, but, I mean, we support a lot of brutal regimes around the world you know, uh, in, in our history, and, and uh, take just going back in history, I mean, you know, the Shah of Iran, or, or I don't know, uh, Pinochet in, in Chile, we supported all of the terrorist, brutal uh, um, regimes. We haven't got a very good record on, 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 on this, and it's always been the resistance uh, that is demonized, but uh, well, you can tell I'm sort of very much on the left in my politics, but, but uh, you know, was Che Guevara a terrorist? Well, Fidel Castro, we're, well, we're still not, you know, reconciling with Cuba, but I know the story of Cuba quite well, and I visited there. You know, that's a kind of an example of the way world affairs go. Um, Cuba, Cuba and Fidel were a liberation movement, and, and they were the good guys, you know. Uh, so that's another story, but, you know. Um, Do you find... Why are we still punishing them? Has your stance changed at all on Hamas from October 7th? Well, no, I condemn what they did. I don't approve of it. Uh, but if you ask my stance to, to understand what happened, as I say, it depends on if you know a bit about Hamas and its history and what it's done. And, 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 and I say relying on these other scholars, that's just as it is. Uh, uh, 
I mean, the, the, what they did on October 7 is inexplicable, apart from being uh, uh, an atrocity and outrageous. Mind you, it's not clear quite what happened. Um, I'm not making any excuses for it, but it turns out Israel killed a lot of the uh, Israeli c- c- citizens there. You know, they came in. I was just listening before I talked to you. Uh, you can find online uh, a, a radio interview uh, by an Israeli, uh, one of the Israelis who was caught there, one of the, the in in in, in where the invasion happened, and she's saying that, of course, the Israelis in, came in with, with force, the tanks were, were, were firing uh, shells, and they didn't try to, to separate out the, the uh, Gaza uh, insurgents, the Hamas insurgents, from the Palestinians, and the Israelis killed a lot of their own citizens there. It was a mess, and, and they talk about the crossfire. I've just listened to that interview. It's in Hebrew, but they've got the English subtitles running across, and you can hear this woman who was one of the survivors. So the Israelis came and – so now what their intention was, whether they intended to massacre civilians, I'm not excusing it. They may well have done, and they should be condemned for it, and they should be prosecuted. And my view, like a lot of the Palestinians' leadership, the solution is you go to the International Criminal Court and prosecute the people from Gaza who did it, and you prosecute the Israelis that did it. And, and, and there's a lot of those. So at the moment. Uh, a war crimes tribunal would be the appropriate uh, way to deal. And as I say, even the leadership of the Palestinians around the world, you can hear their speeches. The appropriate way to deal with this <coughs> is to, to deal with them through the International Criminal Court. <coughs> We've brought up this idea of, you know, the propaganda that is just coming rampant from both sides. I'm sure you heard about yeah. the hospital that was supposedly bombed and then it turned out it was just the parking lot after a you know rough 24-hour news cycle and then on the flip side of that you also had the i think it was the 40 beheaded babies that turned out to be well, we don't know about that was that yeah. was that defunct or was that is that still up in the air the beheaded babies by hamas uh, yeah. doing it in gaza that's been denied. The Israelis themselves walked back on that claim. That's what they didn't. I heard, yeah. And, but and that look, speaks to I'm, the propaganda that is just... Absolutely. Of course. Just, of just course. Being, it's over the top. Oh my, it's insane. It's everywhere and it's from both sides. And if yeah. you do not have boots on the ground, how are you supposed to walk through what is real well, and what but is there not are, real? In, in, in Gaza, there are a lot of journalists. Mind you, the Israelis have killed a lot of, Israeli, of, of Palestinian journalists. Uh, there's a lot of very reputable doctors and others that are working for the UN, and uh, there's a lot of very reputable material coming out of Gaza that leaves no doubt about what's going on there. And the hospitals, it's not the only one. They have bombed I don't know how many hospitals, and not for the first time. Um, so you just have to look at the pictures coming out of the hospitals. Uh, it, it's not as though, the, and the idea, for this there's absolutely no evidence, the idea that there's a Hamas tunnel under the hospital is just bullshit. I mean, and even if there was a, a tunnel, under international law, civilians are not a fair target, even if there is a military target there. There's the laws of, of proportionality and of, of distinction in international law. And the idea of, of human shields is, is in international law, you are not allowed to, to kill civilians, uh, even if they are being used as human shields. So this is just sheer propaganda to excuse the atrocities when they're, imagine bombing a hospital. Mind you, what's the evidence for any uh, Hamas tunnels under a hospital? There isn't any. The, the, the fact that they say it, 
is is not an, and and why do people why are they satisfied with with saying that oh yeah then it's all right we bombed the hospital and now it's okay this is like monstrous I can't understand even if it was true that there was a tunnel under there uh, and by the way the tunnels are in Gaza they're not in Israel any tunnels that that Hamas has inside Gaza is defensive uh, infrastructure for an invasion it's not in Israel how is it legitimate to complain? about tunnels inside Gaza. Of course, when Israel invaded in previous times, my understanding is that they used the tunnels to advantage to ambush uh, invading Israeli tanks and so on. Well, that you can't complain about that. That's not a criminal or terrorism. It's defensive. So, you know, uh, one has to understand what, what, what uh, you know, um, what defense. Uh, I mean, the claim is that Israel has a right to defend itself. Well, I think the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves too. Why do you not buy into the idea that they had a tunnel under the hospital? Well, there's just no evidence of it. I mean, Mads Gilbert, one of the, uh, the Norwegian doctor who's there, he said he wouldn't be there if there was Hamas infrastructure there. I mean, you know, you've got to take that seriously. There's no evidence of it. I've seen some of the videos where they had some picture of something that looked like a tunnel. It turned out to be some air vent or some bloody thing. Okay, but the question is the other way around. The claim has to have some evidence. Don't ask me why I reject it. You've got to give some evidence for a claim like that, especially if you use that claim to bomb, you know, bomb the hospital. But now you take the doctors that have gone there, a couple of, like Mads Gilbert famously, and another uh, Palestinian who went, he, he's, he's in America somewhere. He went into Gaza, he's serving there. You can see him online. His name's uh, Abu Sita. You watch him, it's so sad. I mean, Mads Gilbert says he wouldn't be in, he's in Al Shifa hospital. He wouldn't be there if this was a, a, a Hamas infrastructure. You've got to think, um, people have to think for themselves. Is that a reasonable uh, uh, grounds for bombing a hospital? They're in Gaza. I mean, they're, they're not in Tel Aviv. Is it true that they, because one of the things, again, that I've, you just hear thrown all over the place is that Hamas is constantly utilizing those sort of soft targets where they have terroristic infrastructure under civilian buildings, like a hospital. Or using civilians okay. as, as kind of protective shields, shields. yeah. Uh, it's hard to tell to what extent that's true. Uh, um, my understanding is uh, that the, there's no evidence of that, apart from Israeli claims. That's not good enough. Um, so, and, and, and by the way, it's inside Gaza. So, but again, I just repeat the point I made, that the, the idea of, of human shields doesn't uh, uh, um, save or, or protect or, or, or exonerate uh, Israel when it attacks the human shields because it's a crime, even if, even if they're using human shields, which is a crime. You can hear uh, um, uh, um, the uh, rapporteur for the United Nations, um, Francesca Albanese and various others, you are not justified in, in, in attacking civilians, even if they are being used as human shields. So, so, yeah, they're doing the wrong thing. It doesn't justify you then wiping out all of the civilians. It's just sort of obvious, really. You don't have to know too much international law. You just have to think for common sense. How many children should you wipe out? And, and you remember the, 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 the hospital, I think, was – or no, it was, um, it was that refugee camp. It was um, – I've forgotten its name now. Uh, they claimed there was one Hamas operative and they bombed the fuck out of, out of an entire refugee camp. Firstly, there was no evidence that that, that um, Hamas operator was there. 
and, and so they think that's justified. I don't think a normal human being, you have to ask yourself why people lose their, their common sense and their decency to think clearly. Where, what, under what grounds would that be okay to do, that, do something like that, even if there was a, a Hamas operative there? I don't, there's, there's no evidence that he was there. So they bomb this, this entire uh, densely populated uh, uh, refugee camp. It is being justified, which is the interesting part, is that people are saying, well, because yeah. Hamas uses civilians as shields, the civilians are going okay. to be a casualty. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, well, think of it the other way around. If we, you know, think of, of it, if our citizens, our children were in a hospital and there turned out to be some person below, would that justify somebody coming and bombing our kids? We, we th the trouble is because we dehumanize the other side, that's part of what we were saying before with these terrible um, uh, precedents in history of Germany and Japan. You demonize the other side, and then the, I'm a bit shocked by the extent to which any amount of harm to the Palestinians is, seems okay. I don't understand why people lose their humanity. I'm watching too much of this stuff. It's so heartbreaking. I cry watching this stuff. It's just shocking. You see children, the ones that survive, and they're shaking and they're calling for their mother and, oh, dear God, I'm watching so much of this stuff. Where are people's humanity that they don't respond as normal human beings? Once we've called them Hamas terrorists, then, then it's all okay. It's war. So then it's all okay. We're talking about 10,000 civilians. 4,000 or more are children. Those figures are just mind-boggling. And there's nothing, nothing that can justify that. No matter how shocking the atrocities were that Hamas committed, and I condemn them, you'd have to be sort of deranged. I think this is a kind of a, 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 a derangement for people to, to see that this is okay, what we're doing. You know, it's a depravity. You know, yes, they did this shit thing that they did. And now we go and wipe out over 10,000 people. We still don't know how many are still in the rubble, you know. It's just, it's in, I have trouble imagining how, how we could have got to this. Um, but but it's, to go back, it's, it's like, well, you know, Germany, we just bombed the crap out of every, every civilian in Germany. And we grew up thinking that was right. It's shocking. I remember the movies, Dam Busters. You know, the movie Dam Busters, where they, these airplanes, they devised these clever bombs that would bounce along the water and, and, and hit a dam. Well, that was a heroic story about the British Air Force, how they devised a bomb to break a dam, which then flooded the German villages down, down, downstream. That's a major war crime. But that was a heroic story. We all thought how terrific these, these, these dam busters were. It's a movie. I mean, we grew up with this stuff. So, so in a way, we've been conditioned to not take seriously. Uh, and, and as I say, uh, they're now citing those examples of war crimes to justify what they're doing. It's, 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 it's mind-boggling. And it's not just that people may have been conditioned in the past to accept what's happening. It's that there's still a, a semblance of conditioning going on now. Because again, if you oh. question Israel and you're not Jewish, you're anti-Semitic. And if you, you question Israel and you are Jewish, you get this self-hating Jew phenomenon. You got it. That's right. So That's you're right. getting attacked yeah. on both fronts. You can't, to question yeah. is to be complicit. That's right. That's right. That's a good trick. That's why I mentioned uh, it's been used a lot and still being used, and it works, especially after the Second World War. People are very rightly nervous about criticizing Jews, and, and they 
they they react by by being cautious and and the worst example is Germany. You know, Germany is now not allowing people to march with Palestinian flags, and of course, given their history, they're siding with Israel. And one of the leading politicians said, you know, after the war, uh, we uh, are so guilty of of uh, what we did to the Jews. Uh, now they're siding with Israel without being critical of what they're doing, as if, you know, and, and of course, your point is important because they make an effort to not allow you to separate Jews from Israel. You know, the fact is that criticizing Israel is not criticizing Jews. I mean, they make sure you don't see that clearly, but to the credit of the Palestinians and every rally that I go to, they always make it clear this is a criticism of Israel, not of Jews. That's why they invite Jews like me and others to speak. We repeat this, and I, I pay tribute to them for being very clear about that. But on the other side, as you make the point rightly, they make it very hard for you because Israel claims to be the Jewish state. You know, they've, they've even passed uh, recently in 2018 the nation state law that Israel is the state of the Jews only. They have the Star of David in their flag. They claim to act on behalf of all Jews. So you wouldn't be surprised if people have trouble separating out criticizing Israel and criticizing Jews. But actually, mostly people are good about that. They get it. Uh, the, the Jewish uh, issue is separate. It's not about anti-Semitism. It's about a criminal state. And um, yeah, you're right. They, they, they shamelessly keep using that. You know, by the way, the um, Israeli ambassador to the United Nations years ago, Abba Eban, he said to a Jewish audience, it's on the, on the record, he said, whenever you're talking to non-Jews, make sure that you always make out criticism of Israel to be anti-Semitism. That was way back in the 50s or 60s, whenever it was. And, and as I mentioned, um, Shulamit Aloni, that Israeli ambassador, I'm just repeating myself, but she said on the Democracy Now!, you can look up the video, um, she said, yeah, it's a trick we always use <clears throat> to, to silence criticism of Israel. Well, it works because people are sensitive to being anti-Semitic, rightly. And, uh, but, but, you know, look, I, I can say quite honestly, I have now a great deal to do. I travel in, I, I should say, I travel in Palestine as a Jew in the West Bank. And um, I, I'm received warmly and, and with gratitude, um, uh, as, I'm, as are many Jews. And here, among my Palestinian friends, I never see anti-Semitism. Never. I mean, there probably is some. I mean, you know. But I'm talking about the majority of people who understand uh, that, uh, and as you see in America, those Jews, to their great credit, who, who are the um, Statue of Liberty and in Grand Central Station, they're speaking as Jews, and, 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 and that has the effect of making clear that, you know, um, it's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. What do you make of this, this phenomenon of people tearing down, predominantly pro-Palestinian protesters, tearing down the images that are posted up of those who have been kidnapped by Hamas? Well, that's shocking. I mean, they shouldn't do it. I don't know who's been doing it or how widespread it is. I've seen reports of that. Uh, I, I mean, it's shocking. There's no grounds for that and no justification for that. I mean, the hostages, it's a tragedy, and, and as are the, the dead. Uh, I don't know who's to blame for that. Um, and, and whoever it is should be condemned. That's fine. Yeah, I don't understand why it's, why it's happening. I get, I mean, whether you fall on a pro-Palestinian stance or a pro-Israel stance, what does that have to do with innocent people being kidnapped and taken. Exactly. Do you think we could all get behind this idea that those people should be returned? Even if you think Absolutely. Israel is an aggressor in this situation, that's tearing down these posters. That's not you utilizing your free no. speech. It's you just... No. 
doing it's 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 inexcusable unacceptable <clears throat> and i'm happy to condemn it as as are everybody i think on 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 this side where it's there's no it doesn't help us our cause to 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 do things like that and as you say we stand for i mean releasing the hostages but uh but also part of their concern is of how many palestinian hostages are kept in israel there's an enormous number of people enormous number i don't know how many thousand uh, without trial without uh, any, any legal procedure they just you know what's called um, um, administrative detention that's notorious i've been in in some of the um, uh, um, courtrooms so called the ofer prison inside israel inside the west bank uh, i've watched court proceedings there prosecuting young kids for throwing stones and it's it's shocking so yeah there are uh, yeah and we have to support on both sides i mean look i take myself and i take everybody i'm with to be consistent about you stand for international law human rights and justice and that means being critical of people on our own side who do shit things too that's fine of course that's why i said before take them to the international criminal court uh, prosecute people and and stand up for the rights and the justice for israeli victims as well look i've got family in israel it's not like i don't care and 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 i would i support the rights and and the justice for israeli victims of course People being held in Israel or Palestinians being held in Israel is something I've only heard about earlier today. Prior to us getting on the stock, that was my first introduction that that might be going on. Oh, pal Palestinians are held uh, in, in, in the prisons like Ofer prison. Uh, that's in the West Bank, actually, <clears throat> under Israeli. They're Israeli prisons. Um, there's huge numbers, huge numbers. Um, are they being I mean, held under suspicion of something or this is just... <laughs> they, they arrest them. They don't even tell them. There's no procedure. Uh, maybe they threw a stone. You should go and ch check out the human rights organizations that follow this. DCI, Defense of Children International, B'Tselem, which is the Israeli human rights organization, Human Rights Watch. I mean, these are the most reputable organizations. Go and check out uh, the, the, the state of, of uh, people in detention without trial, without procedure for years inside Israeli prisons. Um, the most notorious case was the young woman, Ahed Tamimi. I don't know if you followed this, but there was this young girl. She, she lives in a village with her family there, and an Israeli soldier came to their house. This was a few years, quite a few years ago, but it was one of the most famous cases. Um, her brother had been shot in the head, I think, just immediately recently, or, or a um, um, cousin of hers. And she went up to a fully armed Israeli soldier and tried to slap him on the face. This was a 12-year-old or 15-year-old kid. I mean, a kid. So they arrested her. She went to jail for nine months or I don't know how long. I mean, this is insane. You know, this young girl tries to slap a soldier, so she's arrested and goes to jail uh, in a, 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 under brutal conditions. But, but, you know, that was so famous worldwide. Um, uh, I had Tamimi. And um, th th that's the story, I mean, of, of, of the Palestinian suffering. I don't know how many thousands of people have been arrested and put into prison under these conditions. Um, the, the injustice is immense. Uh, and, and, and they're the ones that are just uh, uh, in prison, let alone the ones that are being shot dead in the streets. Is the West Bank better off than Gaza because of that collaboration between the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis? Well, that's a, hard to answer better off. I mean, Gaza is indescribably worse just because they don't have enough food or electricity. Uh, it's a, a criminal blockade. The West Bank is under a different military occupation. 
the soldiers and, and settlers, armed settlers, the, the Jewish settlers are not military, but they're all armed and they're protected by the soldiers. So they shoot. I mean, I just watched a video. I was there in, in Hebron, which is the worst uh, place uh, in, in the West Bank, where these, these racist, awful uh, fanatics, the Israeli settlers, are rampaging around, burning uh, olive groves, um, um, destroying uh, water wells of the Palestinians, creating uh, these pogroms in villages. Uh, they're rampaging around the place under the protection of the Israeli army, the IDF. So uh, um, I've got a friend there, I've just because I got to know her in the West Bank. I stayed in the old city just a month or two ago, and she's um, this uh, receptionist in the hotel inside the old city. She, she's scared to walk in the streets because they're shooting people. Um, you know, you, gratuitously, though. Look, it's hard to say which is better, but I mean, in some sense, well, the, the West Bank isn't Gaza. They sort of try to live a normal life there under this over. If you go into the old city, have you been there? I don't know if you've been to the, no. the old city. Oh, well, you should go. Um, I'll take you next time on a tour and show you around. Um, uh, in the old city, which is the traditional old, old uh, Jerusalem, um, you walk through the, the Via Dolorosa where Jesus Christ went to, to, to his, his crucifixion. Um, uh, there's, there's a, you walk into the old city and there's a, a, outside our hotel actually, there's this sort of little barrier and, and four or five fully armed Israeli soldiers are there. And I've got f footage now, we took videos of this. A Palestinian boy goes by, they grab him, they search him, they spread eagle him on the wall, they t pat him down, they, one guy they took away in handcuffs. What the, f what are they doing? This is inside the old city, the Palestinian uh, city, uh, East Jerusalem. Uh, what are they doing there? I mean, this is increasingly just in, in the normal civilian life of the Palestinians in their own old city and East Jerusalem generally. Um, and all over the West Bank, if you go into uh, Ramallah, um, they rampage around. But the, Ramallah is, is, is kind of life goes on there sort of as though it's normal. But in Nablus recently and in Jenin, they're arresting and shooting and, 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 and uh, it's, it's shocking. So the West Bank is, is, is not uh, – it's worse now, by the way. With all the attention on Gaza, I'm seeing they've shot, I don't know, 200 people uh, in the West Bank. It's like it's, – it's a war zone. And uh, this young woman that I, I became friendly with, we were going to film her. We were going to interview her on camera, which we didn't in the end. But she's writing to me and, and terrified to go out um, just to live a normal life there. When you see it like that, um, you get a picture of, of what it's like to be an ordinary Palestinian trying to live your life. I mean, they can't travel. She's mar married to a guy in Ramallah. So she lives and works rather in, um, in, in Jerusalem, in the old city. Her husband is in Ramallah. He can't come to visit her. He can't go through the, the, the checkpoint, the um, Kalandia crossing. Um, she goes to visit him uh, regularly. And the reason for that part is she has to keep coming back because if you've only got residency in East Jerusalem, you lose that if you're not there regularly. They check the refrigerator to see if you've got fresh milk. And they've got these, and they actually uh, uh, take away the permanent residency of Palestinians if they don't show, they've got this phrase, the center of life. If you can't show that you actually have your life based in East Jerusalem, you lose your permanent residency. That's how they get rid of, I mean, a thousand Palestinians. There's this constant way of 
evicting and, and getting rid of as many Palestinians as possible. I was there in East Jerusalem where they actually, we, we went to the house of a, a woman there um, in East Jerusalem where they were planning to evict her. And so Al Jazeera cameras were there and people were gathering around and um, we were there for a few days and a lot of media around. Finally, they came and they took all of her belongings out of her apartment. She'd been there for 50 years and a Jewish family moved in. This is happening all over the place. What's that all about? You know, this is what life is like uh, in Palestine for the Palestinians. So I've got film. We, we interviewed her. We got film with her. That was one case of eviction from inside the old city, not to mention outside in villages where they'll demolish houses. Entire houses that have been built by the Palestinians, they often mostly can't get uh, uh, permits. Uh, and so they're under the threat of demolition permanently, but they build anyway because they've got kids and their family grows. And so they take the risk and often entire house gets demolished. The other source of information about that is the group called ICAD. It's an Israeli group called Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, I-C-A-H-D. They have been, and I'm very friendly with the uh, founder of that, a guy called Jeff Halper. We filmed him and interviewed him. He's been on TV and did lots of interviews. Um, they actually go and rebuild the houses of Palestinians that have been demolished as an act of defiance, as an act of resistance. It's not human charity. It's political resistance <clears throat> against this brutal regime where they go around demolishing Palestinian houses, not for any crime that they've committed. They just didn't give them a permit and they take over. And that's a way of, again, expropriating and, 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 and evicting people in the West Bank. So that they're trying to ethnically cleanse the West Bank. Why is and there so much pushback on that idea? If all this is occurring, why are people so vehemently trying to spread the message that it's not? That there's no one trying to push out the Palestinians. They're welcome there. Everyone's welcome. Yeah. Who's saying that? Who's pushing? Who, who's saying that? I mean, the Israeli government? I mean, th these are not controversial facts. I, to be honest, I'm not sure. What really happens, I'm not seeing the pushback. I just see the, uh, the um, neglect of it. So here, the Zionist lobby people, I'll publish an article and, and I'll list a lot of these facts. When they write their responses, they don't mention these facts. I always make a point of listing all of these terrible facts in the articles because they don't mention them. They'll write some stuff about whatever they want to say. Uh, and they will carefully avoid mentioning it because they can't deny it. I mean, I'm not saying anything that's even slightly controversial or open to dispute. As I say, the human rights organizations, you, how many, 50,000 houses demolished? None of this. Is, but, but your point is a very good one. The media don't show it. They don't give you any sense of the picture. So. So something like October the 7th happens or some, some violence breaks out, and then they show that immediately. But, but the, the, the oppression, the lead-up to the, the suffering of the Palestinians, I mean, I keep mentioning these facts. I told you at least it's more now. Two kids a week are shot dead. Why isn't that? Part of the reason it's not on the front page news, media people told me this when we were there. Look, you know, you can't write this every day. It's not news anymore. If it's happening every day, it's not news. It's just a constant. That's the trouble. Yeah, it's a constant oppression. And so you can't say two more kids were shot this week. Well, right. You know, if it was the other way around, if, if there were two Israelis were shot dead every week, you'd hear about it, you know. And, and it's only when they commit some violence um, that, that it, it's news. So that's why October 7 was re reasonably a, a big event. But, yeah, the West Bank is a very shocking situation. When you travel around there and talk to people, just in small ways, the oppression, not just in these big, brutal ways, the um, their lives are made miserable. Uh, 
the, the evictions in Shujaia, uh, not Shujaia, in uh, Sheikh Jarrah was in the news a lot. The people were being kicked out of their houses. And uh, yeah, yeah, you need to travel there. It's well, your timing is interesting. When you were out there filming, that was for the Dare to Struggle film project. Yes, you, you picked that up, did you? Yeah. 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 That it's yeah. it's almost perfect timing that you guys were out there before this all well, this we, all we, happened. Or not perfect yeah, timing, but yeah. it's interesting that you guys got to yeah. see the before and now like you yeah, said, I would imagine yeah. it's arguably worse out there. Well it's much worse now. Uh, both in the West Bank where we were. Um, we met uh, activists in um, in Hebron. Shocking stories of the struggle and the um, uh, resistance, the difficulty they're facing in Hebron especially. Hebron's an awful place. Um, yeah, that was great. We were traveling, uh, three of us, with two filmmakers, um, a young Palestinian woman, a young woman who uh, uh, was with us, and, and a, a former uh, politician, a, a senator from our federal parliament, and the three of us. So we were the three stories that were uh, uh, the subject of this documentary. The, the one that they've now finished focuses on me a little bit. <clears throat> but we went to places like Lifta, which is, a, I've been there before, beautiful, uh, what's left, one of the few <clears throat> villages that wasn't completely demolished in 48, just outside Jerusalem. And there are remnants of it, still, still beautiful houses standing. And we went with an old guy who was there when he was young. He's now in his 80s, but he was there and remembered when the uh, Jewish militias came in, the Jewish terrorists came in and um, did their terrible deeds in Lifter. And it wasn't far from there it was Deir Yassin, which was the worst massacre of, of, uh, <coughs> of Palestinians, civilians. So that was one of the people. And, and we interviewed uh, Hanan Ashrawi in, in, in uh, Ramallah. She's the great uh, Palestinian leader. That, uh, and, uh, and Jeff Halper, I mentioned, the, um, the founder of the uh, Committee Against House Demolitions. And, um, and lots of people. So that was a... I'd been there before on a documentary film, um, which we didn't finish, but, but this was a recent uh, attempt to tell the story. And, and as you say, it's very timely in the sense that what has exploded now, um, our story becomes useful, although we missed the, um, the, the, uh, the current events. It shows the background, why the, the Palestine story didn't start suddenly. It's like this long history of, of terrible suffering. Well, a long history and yet not as long as people have tried to make it out to be. At least from an outside perspective, I had always been told that, oh, this is just a blood feud that goes back farther than anyone can imagine, but it's really not that old. I mean, we're talking no, about not. the late 1800s, early 1900s. Like. Exactly, exactly. And most Palestinians who remember or have family, they will say the Jews and the Palestinians got along fine. They looked after each other's kids. It's certainly not. <clears throat> not a, a religious uh, dispute. Uh, it, it happened predictably, as we were saying. Once the Zionists had this project to expropriate uh, uh, Palestine, uh, they, they, waves and waves of, of immigrants coming in and taking over and behaving as they did, um, the story is not, not a nice story. And predictably, there, there were riots. And, 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 and um, I mean, it starts in, in 1917, properly speaking, and, and, and got worse as it went on. And uh, there's no other way to tell the story than to see the um, appalling um, uh, tragedy of the Palestinians um, and, and their reactions in various ways. But you're quite right. Um, you can't understand today unless you see it in, in, in its, uh, in, in its histor historical context. 
and most people don't uh, and don't know it. And and your question earlier was a good one. Why do people? Uh, why are people on the other side of this? Well, I'm I'm uh, bothered by that a lot because I'm I'm in the Jewish community here, and and they're behaving very badly towards me and Palestinians. And I know that when I'd, I've tried over the years to talk at great length to, to them, it's very hard to have a meeting of minds. When, when you believe completely different things about it, you can't give the whole story in a way that's convincing. You, you, you can't find common ground. And I've spent long periods at lunches and talking and, and exchanging um, you know, articles with friends that we grew up together, Jewish friends, and we couldn't reach any consensus about what's going on. So it's very hard. And now at a time like this, well, they're just, you know, abusive. You, you can't talk to them. When I get abused in the street, it's not a time. I always say to them, I walk up to them, somebody abused me in the street the other day and, and, and yelled the slogan back at me from the river to the sea, you know, as if, you know, what, what am I talking about? And I said to them, uh, in one case, it was people I grew up with. I mean, I've known them since childhood. I said, uh, look, do you want to just abuse me or do you want to have a conversation? I mean, you know, I was sort of, suggesting, why don't we, well, they just said, piss off. You know, they don't really want to talk to me. Well, I can understand that now, given the, their <clears throat> understandable reactions to October 7. Mind you, they can't see past that. I keep saying history didn't start in October 7, but it didn't finish on October 7. Look at what, they can't see it. If you look at the reactions in the Jewish community, they're not even talking about the 10,000 dead. I mean, I don't even get that. Okay, grieving, we, we can grieve and, 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 and share. Uh, appropriate uh, uh, outrage about October 7. I can share that. Uh, what? We, we can't talk about what's happened since? They don't want it. They, they're not mentioning it. I don't understand that. I'm looking at websites of, of, um, of Jewish organizations. They're still going on about October 7. Fine. But, you know, there's more to be said. It's almost as if yeah. that what happened on that day has just it's the start of a new book and everything before that has no relevancy anymore. It's that was the act and now here That's comes the retribution. Well, but they're not even talking about that. The point is that I think it would be hard for them to justify anybody with any decency. Uh, it would be hard. I, I wonder whether their conscience is pricking them. When, because I keep saying, how bad does it have to get in Gaza before they decide, wait a minute, guys, this is a little bit going too far. I keep waiting for some of our leaders here in Australia, uh, Jewish leaders who might think, you know, we had to react and we have to defend Israel, but, you know, 10,000 Palestinian civilians and four, 5,000 children, I'm waiting for them to say, wait, I'm talking about Jewish, people like me don't count, but I'm talking about leaders in the Jewish community. Say, hey guys, we've got to show some humanity here and we can't support this to, uh, unlimited to, to, to any extent. Where do you draw the line? I'm a bit worried that they're not standing up. I've seen this before. Um, <clears throat> I saw it in Stranger. I guess I've been around for a while. In 1982, um, I was a young academic, and I got invited to address a Jewish group here uh, about philosophy. I was going to talk to them about some of my stuff that I teach and do in my philosophy. But it happened to be just as in 1982, the war in uh, Beirut, in, in Lebanon, broke out. Israel invaded Lebanon. And it was to root out Hamas, or, or rather the PLO, root out the PLO. But in that case, the invasion was the most extraordinary, brutal invasion. 
they, <coughs> excuse me, they killed 20,000 Lebanese. It was a massive, brutal <coughs> invasion. And again, the Jewish community could see on television these huge <coughs> bombings of civilians. It was, you couldn't hide from the reality. And the funny thing was, not so funny, before I could address the Jewish group, they said, would I mind if an emissary from Israel would address the Jewish community? So before I gave my talk, this guy comes out and says something to the effect, I still remember it very vividly, look, it looks terrible on television, but don't worry, it's, it's sort of okay because they gave some story about why it's justified. Because they knew that the horror is so obvious to any decent human being, the Jews had to be given some excuse to explain why they're watching, in the end, 20,000 people getting killed. That was, to me, a lesson, that, that they will find ways to allay the, the, the understandable and perhaps normal human reaction of the Jewish community. So here, as we're talking, I'm seeing it's a war, it's Hamas, it's I don't know what. They're, they're all to, they say things like this. They're all to blame. Some Israeli spokesman will say, one guy even said they all voted for Hamas. They all deserve it. This is like grotesque. It's 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 obscene, and and it's very disturbing that these these feelings are so heightened. So you see it in the interactions that I have around the place. Um, um, yeah, people become so polarized. There's no room for rational, decent conversation anymore. Do you so as I say, that? it was hard enough when. It's. I'm sorry. Continue. No, no, go. On. Do you think that polarization is going to subside? as we get further into this, or where do you see us yeah. going from here? It's a really good question. You know, this is so bad now. It's the worst I've seen. And as I say, before this happened, it was pretty difficult. I mean, because I've been making the effort. I go to these Jewish conferences. Uh, there's a Jewish festival every year here. And uh, I spoke, I, I gave a presentation. This was quite a long time ago. And um, I gave it in two years successively. And then I got banned from presenting because I support the BDS, the boycott movement. So they, for prevented me from appearing. It's like a red line and you can't present at this Jewish conference. So much for open-minded, you know, uh, d discussion. Um, but I go along every year and I go as a delegate. I don't present. Uh, but what's interesting is um, people will talk to you and, and we, uh, some people are willing to talk, some are not. But as I say, it was hard enough until this happened. Even uh, up until now, you get these more extreme uh, reactions as I've received, but um, it's going to be a lot harder now because they're so fixated on the horror, rightly, of, of what happened and the demonization. The idea that maybe the Palestinians and certainly the people in Gaza don't deserve to be regarded as this Jew-hating, genocidal group. That's how they talk. That's how they think. They say it. We, we know this because, look, every war, we do this to the Japanese, to the Germans, to the Russians. I mean, we do that every time. That's, everybody knows this from the history. Propaganda works that way. You, you create this implacable, hateful uh, enemy, and then you can do whatever you, to the Vietnamese, then you justify whatever you want to do to them. God knows that's been the pattern, and we're living through that now. Where, so your question's a really important and good one. Where do we go from here to try to achieve some kind of understanding? I mean, I was thinking for years now to set up a seminar at the university where we would read, but you know, this is such a long story. We're going to read Sarah Roy. and I've got a book of hers right in front of me now. The one woman I mentioned, Sarah Roy, has a book about Gaza, a series of essays. Um, she's the one to read and responsible, respectable people on both sides. But, you know, how much effort does that? 
I mean, I'm at a university, uh, university professor, so I think, you know, the, the average friend of mine isn't going to take that much time to think about it or argue about it. We had a seminar at the university the other day. Um, some of my colleagues ran a, a workshop and several people spoke. Okay, well, you know, you hear different views. That's the only way I know how to deal with this. But the average people I see in the street, um, the people I grew up with in the community, look, I, I was at a, uh, I think I mentioned a local council meeting where they were trying to, get, well, they did get rid of one of the, um, the, the deputy mayor. There was this toxic crowd, this sort of lynch mob uh, uh, from the Jewish community, yelling, interjecting, you know, carrying on this absolutely ugly gathering of people. I say, I use the word lynch mob. That's how they behave, this, you know, ranting and raving, interjecting, uh, um, making rude remarks to people. I, me and a couple of other Jews spoke in defense of these um, council, council members. Uh, they didn't hear what we said. They just abused us, which isn't the normal. doesn't matter what you say. Even if you say things conciliatory and say, you know, stuff that is, is perfectly acceptable, uh, they're not listening. And um, actually, Chomsky, I, I can quote Chomsky years ago, he wrote about this. He said, when you get this kind of polarization, people don't hear anything on the other side. So, so the, in this case, the Jewish community, or, or, or whenever you say anything, even trying to be reasonable, Chomsky says, he's rather cute, he says, all they hear you saying is fuck you, as if that's all you've said. I'm saying something, you know, kind of like explaining, no, we've got to condemn this and condemn that. They don't hear a word. That's what happened to the three of us who spoke. They just abused us. And then Chomsky, I mean, there's a pattern here. That, that was his words. He used that. He said, they, all they hear you saying to them, uh, they think you're abusing them. Uh, so it's very hard to have a rational conversation. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm grateful for this conversation with you because I don't get this opportunity to talk. Certainly, the other, you know, um, it, it's a rare opportunity to, to talk about these things in some ways. Um, yeah, I don't know how we pull out from that. And I don't know if it's valid or not, but, you know, my fear sitting over here is that it just continues to escalate and that yeah. something bigger, not that this isn't a big issue in and of itself, but something that is going to be far more detrimental kicks off from this. And this is, yeah. we look back on this as kind of the stepping stone to a, a much worse place. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, as you say, it, it's not completely different from other conflicts where um, there's this polarization. And God knows in American politics, there's enough of that. The Ukraine situation's a bit like that too. You know, um, this, um, I mean, in America, one of the great things about America, for all its faults, uh, I have this love-hate relationship, you know, having lived there. Uh, the people I love and, and admire most are over there. Um, uh, and and the, the great advantage is because you're a big place. So you've got people on the left who are pr prominent and, and, I mean, Chomsky and people like that and, and Democracy Now! and various media that are presenting an alternative view of, of, of the world. That's very important. There's much less of it here in Australia. Um, and so it's difficult. And uh, um, as you say, when, when some very serious conflict breaks out, um, it's very hard to have some sort of rational uh, dialogue about it. Well, you know, the Vietnam War was like that. Um, I was... That's what I mentioned to you. I was a student when when that arose, and that's where I, that was my first education in 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 this polarization and and how, as you say, the, the propaganda uh, obscures 
the truth of it, then you read about it and you see it and it helps you navigate. And, and you have to decide who, who are the reliable um, uh, um, people, uh, the people that you, you trust. That's part of the problem. That's a huge you know, part of the problem. We, yeah, because we're all in our bubbles. And, and as I say before, the people that I'm arguing with, they read the stuff they read and, and they don't read the stuff that I take to be reliable. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's not just hard to have the dialogue with someone who is in opposition to your ideas. It's hard to find someone willing to sit down for five seconds and even just talk about it. Like, okay, we, yeah. we disagree. We can acknowledge that, but let's have the discussion and see if one of us changes yeah. or one of us presents some new information the other didn't know. Even if we leave the table in our same spots, at least we had the discussion and tried to see it from the other point of view. Yeah. Yeah. There's not even a desire to have that. Everybody has You're their right stance. And I'm going to ride with this until I die. This is my stance. I don't need yeah. to change it. Yeah, you're right about that for the most part. But I have had the, the opportunity and, and, and the effort to, to do this. So let me give you an example. There's a f friend of mine. Uh, he's Jewish. And um, he's a sophisticated guy. He worked for the government as some sort of ambassador. So he's knowledgeable. He's not like most people who just don't know anything about anything. <clears throat> but we were on opposite sides of this Israel-Palestine thing. And he was a diplomat. So he's a sort of sophisticated guy. but completely on the opposite side on the Israel-Palestine thing. So we kind of liked each other. So we would meet for lunch and long, as you describe it, long conversations to sort out where we agree, where we don't agree, what the facts are. And, what, and, and I've done that, as I mentioned, with one of my dearest friends I grew up with. We were teenagers together in our 20s, and I was very fond of him. And that's one example where we exchanged letters and emails and articles. And he's broken the friendship off. We can't keep the friendship up. That's one case. That's the saddest case for me. But this other case I was going to tell you about, this guy we met regularly, his name was also Peter. And at some point I said to him over, you know, the fifth lunch and the fifth long conversation, I said, look, Peter, here's the problem. We're not getting anywhere, just as you said. One of us is completely wrong about everything. I said that to him. I said, look, you know, we, we, we've been talking about this for weeks and we're just, we're not making any progress. We, we don't agree on the most essential fundamental facts. We tried. Now, you know, if, if I'd had a classroom and, and, and we had a, a semester where we'd read, as I do, with every, everything I teach is controversial, and I get to, we read both sides and we try and work through. That's, that's a semester's work, you know, of reading every week, f doing your homework, and maybe you'll come to some, I mean, I used to have that, it might be worth mentioning, I used to teach a course on the philosophy of religion. It's a good example in a way. I'm an atheist. And, and I would teach this course on the philosophy of religion. One of the nice things about it was, because we have American students on study abroad here that come on, on exchange. And at some point, about half the class were Americans, because they weren't used to, you know, somebody teaching atheism uh, or philosophy of religion from this point of view. But, but I was very scrupulous. What I did was, and a lot of religion, uh, the other large group in the class were the campus Bible study Christians. They came to my class. Now, I was very proud of that class because it's relevant to what we're talking about today. I gave them the best articles, the best books on their side, defending religion, belief in God, and I would give them, of course, the opposing view. So I was scrupulous in trying to be fair to present the arguments on both sides. And um, it worked like a charm because they all respected and understood that. And we would argue in, in the tutorials and the seminars and class, we would go through the arguments and see how good they are and what was right and what was wrong with them. And actually, as it happened, one of my students 
uh, rather funny story, maybe not entirely relevant, but it's sort of relevant to the, the problems of, of, of dialogue. A very famous American uh, theologian academic came to Australia. His name is William Lane Craig, very famous guy. And uh, one of the churches brought him out here, and uh, there was a big sign up. Uh, they were looking for an atheist to debate him. So my students put my name in. And so, uh, so sure enough, uh, I, I was, was given the job, the, the gig. And there was a huge meeting in the t- Sydney Town Hall. A couple of thousand people turned up, and it was me debating with William Lane Craig about the existence of God. And um, so my students put me up to this. And um, the, the point I'm making is that at the end of the uh, debate, one of my Christian students, the, the, the Bible study student, said, I did pretty well, he thought. He said, oh, she said, actually, it was a girl. She said, I, I got the better of him on four of the five arguments. He got the best of the, one of the arguments. So, look, it was a nice point about one of my Christian students. I'm still in touch with her. That was the way you conduct a difficult debate about matters which are, you're diametrically opposed, but you take the arguments seriously and you consider them. Now, I didn't convince William Lane Craig and, to become an atheist, and, and, and he didn't convince me to become a believer. So, as you say, there's this standoff, but at least you have to take the issue seriously. And in class, uh, they appreciated the fact that we looked at the arguments. Now, how long does that take? That's like a whole semester. And, and uh, m- most of my friends, the Zionist Jewish community, are not willing to do that. Um, so I, I, it's a good, really important question you ask. I give talks around the place a lot. I went to Malaysia and I lecture there and I, in Australia. But my regret is that I don't get to talk to a Jewish community properly. I can't deal in this long-winded way with the arguments and the issues. Let's just try to think through the history of it. I've got very good slides and a good talk about this whole history we've talked about, you and me. How do we get here? You've got to know some of the background to understand <clears throat> what's going on. So I'm still hoping one of the Jewish communities will ask me to give one of these talks. Yeah, I think that would be a valuable resource. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but as you say, we, we, we end up staying within our... And, and, yeah, they, they, they don't want to hear. They, they, they think they know. Um, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, to the credit of one, of one of the community, we've got a rabbi here who does have a seminar, a regular group, and one of my friends goes to that, and he does, to his great credit, push the, the, the boundary, push the envelope. So there are people here who are confronting the Jewish community with an alternative view. I, I admire him a lot. He, he's in a difficult position, but he gives them readings and, and, and articles and discussions which are, are, are not, uh, they're, they're, they're not comfortable reading, because, and, and particularly people like Peter Beinart in the U.S., who, who it was a, a significant figure in the Jewish community, who still is. Uh, the, the Jewish community in America is very different. You know, the big difference is that here in Australia, the Jews are all like my parents, post-war migrants, refugees from the Holocaust. That's, the, the, you know, since the 50s and 60s. In America, the Jews have been there for a long time. They're part of the, the mainstream scholarship and uh, history. And, you know, they've been there since the, what, 1800s or whatever. And um, they've, they're very progressive. They were at the forefront of the civil uh, rights movement. They've been at the forefront of, of important uh, um, causes like that. They're very progressive. I mean, not all, but, you know, but, but there's a strong progressive element among American Jews, and that makes the whole thing different there. So Peter, people like Peter Beinart and others um, are very important. We don't have that here. They're much more right-wing, uh, conservative, <clears throat> than Zionist. Um, How do you see this playing out? 
Do you think we're going to get to a two-state solution? Do you think? No, no, it's finished. It's over. It's finished. Well, look, look at the map. Look at what I was saying before. I mean, they, it's so hypocritical to talk about two states. I mean, I'm so angry at the Zionist community here. Oh, two states, two states. For how many years has that been? They never complained once. There are now 700,000 settlers, Jewish settlers, in the West Bank. Everyone is illegal according to the Geneva Conventions. They're all illegal. So why do they keep talking about two states and never complain once about the erosion of the two-state solution? How cynical and, and hypocritical is that to keep talking about two states when you're watching it disappear? And as I quoted to you, and, and if you'd like, I'll send you that. I, uh, I mentioned ben Netanyahu and others. They're quite open. There was never going to be two states ever. They said it openly. So, so now, even if they hadn't any settlers, um, but now it, it, it's, it's a mess. The West Bank is, is not a viable state. The, to the Palestinians' credit, they accepted that 22% of historic Palestine as a state. They accepted that. I mean, that was a huge sacrifice, you know, and even that wasn't enough. That tells you the motives of the, the Zionist movement as from the beginning till now. They were never serious. Once you see that, it's important to understand that all this rhetoric about two states, we offered them this and we offered them that, the, the Camp David, the, the, the um, Oslo Accords, they were, were a, a, a betrayal and, and a, a fraud from the beginning. You can read important stuff about that. Edward Said came out immediately after the Oslo Accords and said this was a capitulation by, by, um, by Arafat. He basically betrayed the Palestinians when he sold out. He sold out. And that was the Oslo Accords. The, the Camp David uh, attempts, you can read in the New York Review of Books and various other places I've got, one of the guys who was there, one of the American uh, officials, they were basically, they screwed the Palestinians every time. They had no intention. So when you read that history, the two states was never going to happen. And now just look at it. There's no way it's going to happen. There's, no, there's no, no two states left. So there's no point talking about it anymore. I don't think, I mean, maybe some people like Chomsky may still disagree about that. I think the consensus is uh, the reality. I mean, what are you going to do with 700,000 illegal settlers all over the place? You look at the map and they're all over the place. It's like a, uh, a disaster. I mean, so what now? Well, of course, I think it's equally problematic, as Chomsky points out. One state, we're all going to live happily ever after. How's that going to happen? They hate each other so badly. From As you were saying, this, this demonization, they think that all of the Palestinians are, are Jew-hating exterminationist murderers. They're not going to suddenly, now let's have one state and live happily together. That's, I think, sadly... It's not true about the Palestinians. Um, I, I can say that very confidently. They would settle. Uh, and, uh, but now, maybe, you know, my great uh, 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 the guy in Maya, I've got it sitting right here. I might as well show you. This is the Israeli I was mentioning, um, Jeff Halper. He, he's written this book. He's the, uh, the founder of the um, Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. And he's pushing a, a movement led by Palestinians to have uh, the title t tells you, Decolonizing Israel and Liberating Palestine. They're pushing for a one state, a one democratic secular state. So there's a very strong push because that's the only solution left. I think that's probably right. And he's very articulate in this book, uh, is important, and this movement of Palestinians supported by Israeli Jews and others. Uh, I think that's the only hope. But we've got a lot of work to do to, first of all, allay the fears uh, on, on, the, on the Israeli Jewish side. The propaganda in Israel, the racism is shocking. You see these uh, Vox Pops done in the streets. 
Ordinary young kids, people come up, nuke the fucking Palestinians. That's what they say to you. I mean, so there's a lot of work to be done just to, to re- regain some sense of confidence and, 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 and decency and, and trust. So I don't know how that's going to happen, but, but I, I'm following people like that that I admire that are really seriously expert and, 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 and understand. He's in Israel. I, I, I was with him just now in Israel and spent time with him after we did the interview. Um, and he stayed at my place when he came to Sydney. I, he's one of the great heroes, a Jewish Israeli who's interacting and, and, and uh, as an ally with, with the Palestinians to try to solve this problem. And, uh, but your question's a really tough one. Uh, where do we go after this terrible uh, situation? Um, I don't know how, how it's going to... I mean, I think one answer is it, it depends on America. I mean, America controls everything here. I mean, America is in charge... It, it supports Israel. Look, you know, $3.8 billion a year to Israel for military support. They just gave, I don't know, some $14 billion as if Israel didn't have enough arms to beat up Gaza. They just gave them, I don't know, much more. And, and diplomatically, you know, in the United Nations, they always vote with Israel. They, like uh, to the shame, disgrace of Australia, we also abstained just now on uh, a ceasefire vote. So diplomatically, the only hope is that it, America calculates that maybe it's not in its long-term interest to keep uncritically supporting everything Israel does. It's generating so much hatred uh, among Arab and other countries around the world, not the leadership, but the uh, Arab people and everywhere in the world. Look at the demonstrations all around the world now. They're huge. And there's going to be a cost to that. You can't keep creating such, you know, uh, tragedy and, 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 and injustice. Um, and, and America needs to take that into account. How they wean themselves off this kind of support for Israel, I don't know. Um, it would help if they just moderate. I mean, they often say certain moderate things. You know, Obama said a few things and then, you know, didn't do anything about it. But, you know, um, uh, I mean, even, even poor old Bernie Sanders, you know, he's been saying good things, and then the last thing he said was really very unhelpful. But um, uh, Bernie Sanders has been, generally speaking, quite um, good, um, but it's, it's difficult. And then you've got people, as you mentioned before, um, Rashida Tlaib and, uh, and Omar, what's her name? The, the other woman, Omar, um, uh, in Congress. You've got a few people. Oh, that, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm drawing a blank. Ilhan, Ilhan yes, Omar. Yeah. And, and the New York uh, uh, woman. Um, they're good people. What do they call themselves? The, 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 uh, not the gang. They call themselves something like that. Yeah, they've got some little nickname for their yeah. their group. Yeah, I yeah. don't have a lot of faith in our our leadership to kind of no. search for a peaceful resolution. We don't really. No. It's a little rocky over here. Is it over there in the U.S.? Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's important. I think that's the most important place for making a change. I mean, the other examples that are relevant, I often talk about, you know, look at South Africa, how the apartheid ended there. Look at how East Timor, the occupation of East Timor, the brutal Indonesian occupation, it didn't look like it was going to end. It ended when America decided to pull a plug on the occupation, stop supporting Indonesia. It was a major atrocity in East Timor. We're very close to it here in Australia, and I was very closely involved with the activists here. Um, It didn't look like it was going to end. But at some point, in, well, maybe uh, the lead from America uh, uh, shifted the, the calculation 
and we were slow coming to that. But in the end, um, the Indonesians pulled out. It was ugly. It didn't happen nicely, but but it ended. Um, and the um, the apartheid regime in South Africa ended when they realised this has got no future. And I think the, the activism around the world made a difference. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert, but um, the the you know activists around the world were so um, involved in in protests and. Um, supporting uh, the the um, anti-apartheid the um, in South Africa, and and the East Timor issue became a very big cause around the world. So maybe that's it's a bit slow. You'd want it to be faster than that, but <clears throat> the activists for Palestine, as you can see in America and elsewhere, it's it's growing, and 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 <clears throat> and, and um, hopefully some politicians may <coughs> may start to. Um, Shift a little bit. Just seeing, it's sad to say this, but maybe the 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 extent of this horrible atrocity in Gaza may shock people. I mean, it 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 may force people to confront what horror has now been created, and that, you hope some good may come of that. It's terrible to say that that's what it took to to get some kind of justice. What a terrible pr- price! What a terrible cost! Well, Peter, thanks for thanks for doing this. Thanks for talking with me. I really enjoyed our chat. Well, I did too. I'm so grateful. I've never had such a lovely, long uh, interview. It's very nice of you to take the time and give me so much time. Absolutely. I was happy. I was happy you were willing to come on and chat. I'm sorry you're not feeling very well. Hopefully, you're on the road to recovery. <laughs> I'm sorry my coughing is starting to get worse. No worries. <laughs> the COVID is. But you've been terrific to talk to. I appreciate it very much. You've been great, and thanks for your time. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Do you have anything you want to plug where people can find your work, anything like that? Uh, well, let me see. I have to think quickly. Um, if you Google me and you can Google my articles, I've published quite a lot, <coughs> um, several articles uh, recently. <coughs> Sorry, I can't stop coughing. Um, I've published quite a lot in the mainstream media here um, about these problems, the statehood of Palestine recently. Um, I guess if you just Google my name, um, and um, I guess it'll come up, uh, Palestine. Um, you'll see some of my articles. Um, uh, I guess that's not hard to find. Okay.